You are are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Super excited and honored for today's guest. After building, buying, or selling a half a dozen of his own companies, Joe Valley helped out Quiet Light Brokerage, one of the leading online-focused M&A advisory firms in the world. Now, after facilitating nearly a half a billion dollars in exits, Joe has written the best-selling book, The Exitpreneur's Playbook, to help online business owners get the maximum value and best deal structure when, when they seek their own incredible exit. I'm excited to welcome Joe Valley to Making Bank today. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Josh. And it's a great fit. <laughs> Making Bank and <laughs> the Exitpreneur's Playbook. Perfect, because that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens when somebody sells their business. At least half, in most cases, actually, more than fifty percent of the money they they'll ever make from their business actually comes the day, the day that they sell it. In most cases. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about. I mean, how did you? I mean, you know, did you get started as an entrepreneur at a young age? You know, what kind of got you all involved and in, in, on this path? Yeah, hell, man, I've been self-employed since 1997, so about 24 years. But even back as a kid, I knew that was the path that I wanted to take. So I was always hustling and you know selling. I had a worm farm when I was nine years old and lived on Central Street in Gardner, Maine, and the fishermen would come by and knock on the door because my dad was kind enough to let me put a sign out front on the tree. It's kind of embarrassing for him, I would imagine. But I made I made some bank back when I was nine years old. Um, but I took that all the way through college. I launched a business in college, a restaurant delivery service, much like uh, Uber oh, Eats, wow. Grubhub, cool. stuff like that today. Um, but I was I was a full-time student and working seven nights a week, eight hours a day. So something had to give, and that gave. So after six months, I bailed on it and went to work for a, a company that I was competing against. Or actually, I wasn't competing against them because they were, they were very good, and I was just a little rinky-dink guy. It was called Dining In. Oh, and sure. um, uh, Michael Hackle owned that business, and he's the reason why I, I, I decided to start my own because uh, he had walked into the restaurant that I was working at uh, part-time, and uh, then I started my own when he walked in. I ended up going to work for him, and I actually made more money uh, as a driver for dining in uh, than, than I did running my own business, but I still wanted to run my own business. I still knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. And uh, Michael drew that business, went from Boston to Chicago, New York, and all sorts of big cities, eventually sold it to Grubhub. Um, but I, uh, I took my own path from college and tried a number of different things. I actually had you know, the dreaded job here and there. But the last one I had was an entrepreneurial gig because it was a company that was growing like crazy. You know, I was employee number 34, and in three and a half years, we had uh, over 1,000 employees. And it was a blast and a lot of fun, but then it got really awful at the end because we were all marching into work like marching ants. And uh, people in an organization that grows that fast with that many people, they grow to their, or they get promoted to their level of incompetence, if you will, if you've ever been in that situation. So I bailed went out on my own. And uh, I, I think I was, before I left that company, my salary, it was 1997. Um, and we had some downsizing. So I made, I made uh, my, my salary was about $50,000 in, in 1996. And it was 
we had some downsizing because we grew too fast. Sure. And oh, lost yeah. money. And everybody's pay cut came in 1997. So I was making about $35,000 in 1997. I left in the fall, started my own company with a goal of making $50,000 in 1998. I made about a half a million dollars in my first full year. Of well, you overshot it. <laughs> yeah, I overshot a little bit. And I was never going back. And And not... Not just because of the money. The money was great, but because of the freedom and flexibility to sort of chart my own path, even though, as you know, uh, that can be difficult at times. You know, I had years where I made a tremendous amount of money, and then I had years when I lost triple digits as well. Yeah. So, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, it sounds you've had a pretty entrepreneurial journey as I have myself since I was a kid. And, uh, you know, that that's super cool to hear. What were some, you know, obviously owning, starting that worm farm when you were a kid and, and doing, I mean, it's, and it's kind of interesting because I've, uh, so we got three kids and, you know, we, the boys and they, we homeschooled them for years now. So it's not just a recent thing as a lot of people have been doing, but, uh, you know, part of that is, you know, teaching them sales and, and learning the sales and, you know, be able to go through what were some of the things that you've kind of taken away since you were a kid that you found that you've been able to apply without knowing back then, you know, that you've been able to apply to other businesses and other things that you've done since then. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, there weren't any, well, I guess there's one amazing conversation. You know, I, I grew up, my, my, my folks were employees uh, their entire lives. They both worked for the state of Maine as employees. My mom was a secretary and my dad was a, an engineer, a civil engineer working on roads. And they had a close friend the McCurdy's and, and, and Stan McCurdy was, and is still to this day, an entrepreneur still works for an entrepreneurial organization, a family business. And I, I went to work for uh, Stan when I was in high school. And I remember complaining, they were over playing Chinese checkers with my mother and father one night. And I was complaining that I didn't have enough money. And he basically told me to shut up <laughs> in the nicest possible way to man up and work more. He said, there's plenty of work to do. Just do more work. Ask for more work. There's plenty of work to do. And this is at his company. Sure. And I'm not working directly for him. I'm working, you know, seven layers below him. And that was, you know, lesson number one. If you really want something, you just got to work for it. Um, and, and I took that all the way through. I, I remember the first time I met my brother's um, father-in-law. He said, well, I, I hear you're quite the hustler. And, you know, that could be taken a number of different ways, but it was a compliment is what he was saying, because my sister-in-law, who, you know, is five years older than me, is, is, is telling her family that I'm hustling and working hard, just trying to get ahead. And I, I was like, I was still in college at that time. But of right. course, I was working full time, running a company and, and, and in school as well. But so I took that all the way through, no matter what, I didn't know exactly what my entrepreneurial path was going to be. I just knew I was going to have it. And, you know, after I left that company, this company called Talk America, where, you know, we had a thousand employees and I had to, I had to go because it was not an entrepreneurial organization anymore. I, I, I launched my own products. I launched my own media agency and, and I just found my path online eventually. And that's kind of what led me to where I am today. I sold my last e-commerce business in 2010 uh, through a company called Quiet Light, where I'm now a partner. And the reason I'm a partner now, Josh, is because I had that same mental fortitude and work ethic that I had uh, after Stanley slapped me upside the head and told me just work more, work hard, I get, you know, all that stuff. And it's not always the 
work smarter, not harder. And my, you know, I think entrepreneurs have to do both and they have to work really, really hard. And so I did that when I, after I sold my own company, I went to work for the company that sold it, Quiet Light Brokerage. And there were only three of us at the time, four actually. And I made myself completely indispensable. I generated 70 plus percentage of the closed transactions and worked my way into becoming partners with my now current business partner, who's the original founder of the company. So, you know, people that are listening, you don't always have to uh, stroke a check to buy your way into a business or to buy a business. In my case, you know, in the, this is, you know, as you said in the intro, I've owned, you know, built, bought, or sold six different companies in my lifetime. That doesn't count, Quiet Light, uh, or my new company, Exipreneur. But in this case, with Quiet Light, I earned my way into it by making myself uh, invaluable. And, and I loved what I was doing. I was helping other people. So it, it, it's still, I'm, you know, I'm a online M&A advisor, people that, that for their own online businesses, but I'm very, very much an online, uh, an entrepreneur at the same time. And then, so you've, you've taken, so they acquired your business. And then through that, that's where you've been able to help people and work with them to uh, create exits, you know, close to a half a billion dollars then. Almost, almost. So Quiet Light is the middleman. They're okay. a, a sell-side M&A agency where we help people uh, exit their businesses. So they uh, were my advisory firm when I sold my e-commerce company back in 2010. And somebody outside the organization, a private individual, bought my business. Okay. Quiet Light doesn't buy any businesses. It would be a conflict for us to buy that because naturally we'd buy just the best ones. Right. So an M&A agency can't buy companies and hold them because they'd be cherry picking and sell the bad ones to the buyers. Sure. Um, we technically represent the sellers, but we have to um, be trusted and help the, the buyers as well. Because in this environment, in this world that we live in, um, out of all the deals I've done in the last decade, there's only been one buy side advisor. It's usually the buyer comes with no representation whatsoever. Uh, so I sold my company, joined the company as a, call it a broker, if you will. We call ourselves advisors now, but I became a broker. And through that, I personally have sold about a, a hundred million in total transactions. And through the company, about a half a billion altogether in that time period. And that's changing rapidly. You know, when I started back in 2013, the average, uh, 2012, early 2012, I took a year off, by the way. Um, the average transaction size was like $150,000. Now it's, you know, the median transaction size is closer to 2 million. We're doing, you know, uh, eight figure deals on a regular basis. Now we have one nine figure deal. So that half a billion that you mentioned, um, you know, could closely get to a billion uh, because of one transaction that's, that's about 350 million. That's, we've got a letter of intent on. That's awesome. So what, I mean, as entrepreneurs, you know, and, and, that are watching this, you know, what are some of the things, I mean, they may have not thought, oh, hey, I want to go sell my business. You know, that may not be like on the forefront, but because they love what they're doing, they're just focused on that. But one day it may come to fruition where they're like, oh, hey, I want to, I'm, I'm old or I want to sell it and go do something else. What are some of the things as an entrepreneur that we need to start looking for or start uh, setting up in our business to be ready for that? Yeah. First and foremost, accept the fact that you're going to exit your business someday. People say, I love it. I'm never going to sell. 
okay, but you're going to exit your business someday. You are going to die. You're not going <laughs> right. to live forever. You're going to pass it on to your kids. Your partnership's going to break up. You and your wife, you and your husband, you're going to get a divorce. Somebody's going to die. Something's going to happen that you're going to exit your business. So if you want to make the use, the best use of what you've built, get some education, get some training. And, and, and that's why I wrote, and we talked about holding this up. It's the entrepreneur's playbook. Uh, but But really... What people should be doing, first and foremost, is accepting that they are going to exit someday and then setting some goals. And the goals that I like to set involve dollars and dates. And the last thing is kind of weird, but feelings, because, you know, the feelings are important. Because when I talk to somebody after they close the business, I said, so, so how are you feeling? Um, it's not about the zeros that they have in their bank account. Usually the response is, I feel an incredible burden lifted off my shoulder. And it's because they sold the business because it outgrew them to the point where um, they promoted themselves to their own level of incompetence. And if they kept the business much longer, it was going to turn down. Or they built it to $20 million, but they knew they couldn't take it to $100 million, but it could go there. So dollar, state, and feeling. And, and the feeling needs to be something like the whole thing needs to be, uh, I'm going to sell my business for $5 million in Q1 of 2023. And when I do, I'm going to feel unburdened because I'll have money in the bank no stress, and I can spend more time with my family. And the feelings part is critically important because we all have very tough days, weeks, and months, and sometimes years as entrepreneurs. If you right. have written goals that involve those feelings, it will help you get over those tough days, weeks, months, and years much easier. So once you've done that part of it, you have to figure out how close or how far you are from that goal dollar-wise. And then you've got to reverse engineer a path to that. So you've got to figure out what your your business is, is actually worth today. Uh, you can get 80% of the way there in the book. If you've got an online business, I don't do brick and mortar stuff. So if it's an okay. online business, you'll get 80% of the way there. Um, and that's pretty close, but you'll learn. Most people don't understand even the basic formula of uh, how businesses are valued, right? It's a multiple of what's called seller's discretionary earnings. It's not EBITDA. It's not adjusted EBITDA. It's seller's discretionary earnings. And these are generally owner-operated businesses with you know, a few employees or staff of maybe 10 or 15 tops. Um, so it's a multiple of that. Seller's discretionary earnings to keep it light and not go too deep in the weeds, Josh, is net income on your P&L plus add backs and one-time expenses. Right. That equals seller's discretionary earnings. Now, the challenge in calculating seller's discretionary earnings is first understanding and knowing how to do it. It's all in the book. But... Um, most people, and most being 51% of the people that I talk to at least, don't actually operate their business with QuickBooks or Zero. if it's an owner-operator type of situation. It's them, a bank account, a credit card, and a napkin. And I've seen that happen with businesses that are you know, doing 5 or $10 million in revenue. Sure. So you gotta, you got to get some real bookkeeping done and get your financials in good order. That's really step number two or three. Right. Um, and you've got to use accrual accounting. Most people don't even understand the difference between cash and accrual. And I don't blame them. I fell asleep in accounting class. But you got to understand the difference in, in, in accrual and accounting. You got to get a firm grasp on your P&Ls because the business that you're investing your life savings into, all your time into, is probably your most valuable asset. But if you don't have P&Ls to pay attention to, if you don't spend time every month analyzing them and understanding what the true value of your most valuable asset is you're, you're definitely not going to exit someday uh, for the price you want uh, at the time you want for the for the buyer uh, to the buyer that you want.
Yeah, no, I, I mean, knowing your numbers definitely super important. I mean, what the prophet Marcus Lemonis always talks about that. If anybody's watched that, you know, you got to know the numbers and you can't believe it when people don't know the numbers. Um, yeah, I mean, we even, we even hired um, a fractional CFO, um, like CFO expertise a few years ago. And I mean, dialed in. So we get like daily reports of what our PNL is on a daily basis, especially for e-com. This is super important so we can make adjustments yeah. and everything else. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things. What I, what are so like, what are some other things I know? Like we've, uh, worked on over the last couple of years building out our advisory board. So we have like Damon John from Shark Tank on our advisory board, Dave Asprey from Bulletproof Coffee, um, the ex-president of L'Oreal Cosmetics that took him from like 900 million to 4 billion and stuff. So is that super important? Does that create more value, you know, as you're building and growing your company um, to when you go to exit? Um, I mean, what, I guess, what are some of the beneficial things that'll increase the value other than taking kind of like just the multiple of that net income line? Yeah, right. Because the, 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 the discretionary earnings calculating that and, and, and the multiple of that, that's just math, right? Right. Buyers that are investing their life savings or other people's savings that they have to report to, it's not just about math. There's some emotion in there and they're going to gauge you know, uh, what your business is worth in a certain value range on things other than math. And, and what they generally look at are uh, risk, growth, transferability, and documentation. Okay. And under each of those pillars, if you will, there's, there's subcategories. You know, under risk, it's the age of the business. You don't want to sell it when it's too young. You don't want to sell it when it's too old and becoming a dinosaur and there might be fear of obsolescence. Right. Risk, again... Let's say that there is channel risk. Do you have one SKU or two SKUs that are represent that are producing 80% of the revenue? And a SKU could be a customer too. You, you may be a SaaS business and you've got 400 subscribers, but 200 of them come from one company and it's the 200 employees that are the sub- subscribers. That's a huge risk. So the, the, the risk is a really important one to focus in on. And you want to sort of do a self-assessment of your own business in these six different pillars below the, the risk topic, because that is what buyers are looking at. Uh, sometimes they're called the four pillars of risk. I just like to refer to them as what buyers want, because you know these are the things that they focus in on year after year after year. So risk is one of the most important ones. You know, growth, obviously, you know, and, and you think it's simple, like, is it going up or is it going down? Right. Not as simple as that, right? Is it, is it uh, you know, uh, clear paths to growth? Has the owner of the business recently launched new SKUs or new add-ons to the SaaS product or added consistent content over time and the path is already there and it's built in? And I, as the new owner, just have to step in the path and walk down it. I might need my machete to clear it a little bit when I get, you know, 12 months in. But for the most part, there's built in paths to growth. Buyers love that and they will pay more for the business for that. Mm. And let me just, you know, pay more, how much more these things. Again, it's not math, but when it swings the multiple by a half a point and your business is doing a million dollars in discretionary earnings, that's a swing, you know, of of. You know, you go from a five-time multiple or five million dollars to five point five. Now you're at five point five million dollars. It's it's a half a million bucks for these things. So even though it's not math, I really encourage pay, people to pay attention to them. So is it trending up? Is it trending down? Are there growth opportunities that you haven't tapped into yet? Uh, and then the transferability of a business. Everybody says, well, well, that seems easy, right? Can you transfer the business or not? 
Um, yes, that is it. But if you are the name and face of the business and you just want to hang up your shoes and walk away, I, I got bad news for you. You're not going to be able to hang up your shoes and walk away because people trust you and your name and your reputation. And that's why they visit the business. That's why they buy the products or use the services. So there's probably going to have to be some sort of transition period where you have to stick around for a little while. So the, tran the transferability of the business is key. You want the key customers, the key manufacturers, the key contractors, the key employees. And you, if you're the name and face of the business, right. got to stick around a little bit, at least as a strategic advisor. And then there's the documentation. And this seems like it should be the easiest one. This is where most people fall short. Okay. Because <laughs> you're <laughs> running somebody, and gunning all the time. And it's like, the, like oh, documentation, we'll work on that later. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. And I understand it. I did it too. You know, I told you my first year, I had a great year, um, but I didn't reconcile my accounts. I had no idea. I'm like, whatever, I'm, I'm making all sorts of bank. I'm right. okay. It's fine. Yeah. And then, um, you know, my, my brother's best friend's a CPA. And uh, it's funny because he's a beer drinking, weed smoking CPA with one leg. <laughs> um, and he came over to the house and we start reconciling accounts and we're, we're, we're being entrepreneurs and we're having a beer and he found money. I mean, he, I actually had much more money than I thought I had accessible to me. And I began to like, you know, accounting and, 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 and reconciling accounts and seeing what I actually have there. Cause I want to look at real numbers right? and it helps you predict cash flow. So documentation is really, really critical. An easy one that hardly anyone does is an inventory aging report. Mm. Inventory aging report. I want to buy good sellable inventory from you and I know it's going to turn in three to four months. I don't want to buy inventory that's 12 months old that you for the life of you can't sell. Because sure. you're really good at what you do because you built this business. I'm buying it to you know take it to the next level, but I'm going to struggle at first because I'm new to it. And I don't want to buy tough to sell or unsellable inventory. So I need an inventory aging report. Most people miss that. But SOPs are really important because if you sell your business to me, Josh, and you don't have any SOPs, you're going to have to work a lot more teaching me how to run your business. Right. If you've got SOPs for everything you do, I'll ping you now and then and we'll talk now and then. But the transition period of, of what we call it the transition training period is normally up to 40 hours over the first 90 days after closing. This is honestly for most businesses, even up to 25 million. It, it's going to be so much easier for you if you've got great SOPs. It's not for you. It's for me, the buyer. So those things are really important. So risk, growth, transferability, documentation. And then there's one thing that holds them all together. If we call these pillars, there's mortar that holds them together. That's you, right? You want to be real careful about what you post online, social media, mm, everything today. Okay. If you post something that alienates half of the people in the country or is offensive to men or women or vice versa, um, you may alienate your best buyer. And so you kind of want to be smart about what you're posting and not taking a harsh stance on something that's religious, polit political, sexual, whatever it might be. Because I want to buy a business from somebody that I like and I trust and know that they did a good job with the business. And I'm going to need to spend some time with them during due diligence, during training and transition, and I want to be able to work well with you. So be careful about what you post because anybody that's going to stroke a check for a million, two million, 10 million, 25 million, 
they're going to dig. They're going to look for everything that you've ever posted online because they want to make sure that they're buying it from the right person. Yeah, no, that that makes you know definite sense too. I mean, especially with the uh, fragility of a lot of people in the marketplace these days. You know, yeah. it uh, I think tends to um, provide, a, a, I guess, an opportunity for people to not really find you know the best light on people. But I think overall, um, as entrepreneurs and business owners, a lot of times we get, we're so focused on running the business and we have, you know, team of, you know, social media and things like that. I mean, if it wasn't for our business, I mean, I probably wouldn't be on Facebook or Instagram or anything else like that. You know? yeah. And so it's like, oh, well, I got to be on it because of that to be able to post stuff. But what's interesting too is like, uh, you know, Facebook and Instagram, they had gone down the other day you know, if a lot of people's, if your business was directly affected by that and you lost revenue, that's a bad thing. You know, I know one of the, we, I didn't even know it was down until somebody texted me like, Hey, did you know? I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. Well, yeah, whatever. I thought it was my, I thought it was my internet here. I kept trying to go right. around. Like, uh, my default is I always again. go to cheese.com to see if everything's working because right. cheese.com never goes down. Right. And it, it, it came up and Facebook was down. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, most important thing, you know, you can talk the numbers all day long. You can yeah. talk the pillars all day long of what buyers want. Um, but ultimately, it, it, it boils down in a, in, in a transaction that is not at arm's length, right? I'm the guy buying it. You're the guy selling it. We're going to be on calls. We're going to be doing due diligence, so on and so forth. It comes down to trust, mm -hmm. right? You need to be a trustworthy person, somewhat likable, but mostly trustworthy in order to sell your business for maximum value and a great deal structure. If there's something I don't like about you, but I'm still okay with the business, I'm not going to trust you as much. I may not give you all cash, Josh. Let me say, you know what? I'm going to, I need a stability payment just to make sure the business doesn't fall off a cliff. A stability payment means I'm going to hold back 10% of the total purchase price. I'm going to leave it in escrow. And as long as the revenue is within 90% of the day of closing, 12 months later, it's going to be released to you. That way, I know you didn't build the business on a house of cards. Right. And it's also a private equity way to keep more money of my own and buy your business at a low multiple because ultimately the revenues from the business is going to pay for that stability payment. There's all sorts of ways that buyers will shift and maneuver and, 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 and negotiate if they don't trust you. There's all sorts of them, like an entire chapter on them. Um, but, but you've got to be a trustworthy somewhat likable person, right? I've sold businesses for people that are somewhat likable. So people, and, and they got a fair price. The really likable people, the incredible people got an incredible price. I sold the business for a guy named John. He was 72 years old. He and his wife traveled the world uh, posting content and, and, and surveys online about what they did. And they earned money through affiliate revenue. He was making about $400,000 a year doing next to nothing. And at the time he sold the business, multiples were low, maybe 2.6, 2.7. And John, this was a 17-year-old business, but it's an online business nonetheless. And John said, well, I'll have none of that. No, you just get them on the phone with me and I'll just, uh, let me let me go from there. I liked the guy so much, I rolled the dice and we listed it at a four-time multiple. So instead of him getting you know, 1.1, 1.2 million, John wound up with 1.6 million in multiple offers because he was really, really likable, really, really trustworthy. 
and everybody wanted to buy his business and have a drink with him afterwards kind of thing, you know? That makes a huge difference, and people don't think that way, and they really need to think that way a little bit more. On top of the good numbers and the four pillars they've got to do, or, or the five, if you will, if you're sure. the person. But all of those things are really important. But without trust, you're never going to sell your business. Yeah, that's, you know, and I think a lot of people probably don't think about that aspect of it. It's, hey, here's what I got. Here's this, you know, it's it's generating revenue, it's profitable and, you know, and everything. But then they, you know, don't think about, oh, hey, you know, even though I'm a jerk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And th- th- there are choices today, right? right? More and more people that are in the online world where I live are starting to come to the realization that these are real businesses with real value that you can sell for real life changing money. And it means buyers have choices. Right. Uh, so you as a seller need to run your business, not not just so you can pull as much cash out as possible. You, you need to shift your mindset to building a great business for a great customer, for a great buyer to take over at a great price. If you do all four of those things in your mind and work hard on your business, you will get maximum value. And that half a point shift is a half a million bucks or a million or two or four or five. Now, you got to pay attention to all the details of the business all along the way, but you got to shift your mindset a little bit. And look, we're not kids, right? I'm I'm 55. I don't know how you old how old 50. you are, but you're not 23, <laughs> no. right? When, when I was 23, all I wanted to do was make money and more money. Even when I first became self-employed, sure. my objective was to make money. I used to I used to write on my hand how much money I made every week. Yeah. I'd, show my, I'd show my dad. And, a little post-it note on your mirror every morning when you get up. And, Wherever you can write. Right? It was yeah. about money. It wasn't about helping people as much as I could. I'm a little older these days, and it's an odd thing, but the more people I can reach and help uh, in my business, and you can do this in any business, but the more you help people, the 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 more you're going to earn, both in terms of self-worth and wellness, but also in money. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange mind, mind shift. It's not just make more money, make more money, but do the right thing, do good, sell great products to great people, and eventually you'll sell your business for a great price. Or maybe someday you'll exit without exiting and have somebody come in and run it for you uh, and then pass that on down through the generations. Awesome. And basically, I mean, inside the Agentpreneur's Playbook, I mean, you have all this detail. So it, it's basically like you said, it's the playbook. I, I can jump in it. I can dive through it, start reading it, and then really start to map out all right, great. I have my numbers right. Okay. Oh no, I need to work on this section. Oh wait, I got to figure out what my business valuation is. So all exactly. that is broken down in there for me to figure out. Yeah, you know, I've I've had uh, over eight thousand of these conversations with with people that want to sell their business, one on one conversations over the last decade, and it's a culmination of all of those conversations. And in a very, and uh, the, the feedback I get is great. It, it's very readable. It's as if we're having a conversation right now, or having a beer across. The table at a pub. Um, it's digestible, it's readable, and it's not um, It's not over, it shouldn't be over too many people's heads. It's over my mother's head, right? She's, she struggled to read my own book, Josh. And my wife, she's doing all right. But, you know, it, for the most part, she just didn't want to read it. But for the most part, it's, it's, it's just a couple of entrepreneurs talking. And I'm telling real life success stories of people that I've worked with. 
uh, and um, they've done very well. And I've t- I'm telling some epic failures uh, of real life people. I changed their names, by the way. And I'm telling some of my own success stories and failures. But I am getting into the nitty gritty of what brings value, what plummets value, what buyers are looking for, how to do the math, how to use the logic, types of deal structures, what buyers are going to negotiate, what a letter of intent is, what should be in it, what shouldn't be in it, asset purchase agreement, how to prepare for due diligence, ad nauseum, it's all there. It's good information. And I had to write it because those 8,000 people that I've talked to, there's another 800,000 people that weren't comfortable having a conversation because they feel like an advisor or a broker is going to try to talk them into something. Um, and our approach is very different. We just helping. And as, as my mentor, uh, Uncle Walter, uh, told me uh, when I was uh, becoming a partner here and, and, and negotiating my way into partnership, he's like, well, Joe, it, it sounds, I was talking about the business, but it sounds like, Joe, you, you're just giving everything away for free in hopes that your clients work with you. I'm like, exactly, Walter. We're just putting it out there. We're helping our clients and um, they're building better businesses because of it. And, and we know that process because everybody on the Quiet Light team is an entrepreneur. We've all built, bought, or sold our own online business before joining the team. That's a prerequisite. If you're not an entrepreneur in the online world, you don't get to be an advisor. Um, so we've all been there, and we understand that um, you, you got to help first, educate first, share this information because it's all scattered all over the Internet. Um, and then, you know, help people build more valuable businesses and exit when they're ready. And that's, you know, that's the process that's been working for a while now. Mark founded the company in 2007 and, and uh, it's 2021 and we're still going strong. Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, NFTs, investing is all an ever-changing landscape these days. And for me, the Modern Finance Podcast hosted by Kevin Rose is a great place to listen to the latest trends in crypto, and brush up on the fundamentals. Crypto isn't for everyone till you listen to Modern Finance. Modern Finance is the crypto show for the novice and expert alike. Their mission is to demystify crypto and the world of NFTs without dumbing it down. True venture partner Kevin Rose interviews top tech experts and entrepreneurs exploring the modern finance tools and helping others understand crypto, NFTs, and even traditional finance hacks. Modern Finance offers two shows on a single podcast feed, one weekly consensus episodes that explores weekly news and distills it into digestible information, and then the deeper interviews, which I love, with individual crypto founders and NFT artists. Don't let your crypto guy friend be the life of the party. By listening to Modern Finance, you will feel well-equipped to discuss and understand the crypto and NFT landscape. Feel informed about your investments and don't miss out on the next big thing in crypto or NFTs. Join Kevin Rose on the Modern Finance Podcast every single week so you don't miss a beat. Ten years ago, some people called cryptocurrency a scam. Five years ago, people thought it was a fad. And now it's already over a trillion dollar market and growing. The Modern Finance Podcast helps you make sense of all the coins, NFTs, and chaos. Now is the time to equip yourself with the knowledge of where things are going. The financial landscape is harder than ever to navigate, but you don't have to do it alone. Download and subscribe to Modern Finance wherever you listen to podcasts. 
That's Modern Finance, wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't be the last person on the next train out. Listen to Modern Finance and get ahead of the future of finance. And I mean, one thing you too is you mentioned, you know, finding it all over the internet. I mean, I think one of the important things is you have legitimate, true information in the book where a lot of times, who knows the information out there? Was it really somebody that went through this? Did they, do they have yeah. any type of uh, background and, you know, skill and, and, uh, you know, invested, um, knowledge in that area. So whereas you do, yeah. and after talking with 8,000 people and doing this on a daily basis. Yeah. And it's, it's at your fingertips, you know, if it's bookmark pages that you've read from different forums and different websites, and like you say, some of it may or may not be accurate. Um, but it's also scattered. Uh, right. The great thing about this and is, is that you can pick it up at any time and read through it. You can read through it all at once or in a particular period in your business, you can go, you know what? I need to learn more about negotiations on deal structures. Not only am I eventually going to sell, but I have an opportunity to be an acquisition entrepreneur and buy my competitor. Let me see what chapter 15 says about deal structures and that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's something I think that people can refer back to time and time again as they're running their business with a, an eventual exit in mind. Or, you know, also, like you said, it's the playbook. Uh, you know, last weekend, you're in, you're in Ohio, so you probably didn't watch the Patriots and, the, and Tampa Bay play, you know, but obviously the, Tom Brady had the playbook for the Patriots. Right. You mix it up a little <laughs> bit. If you want to have a playbook for the opposing team, like they did a little bit, it's also a great book for acquisition entrepreneurs because they can, they can see what's in the mind of the seller. They can uh, look and see how the business is listed and look at the P&Ls and see if they did a proper ad back schedule. And if they didn't, don't tell them and gain some instant equity <laughs> when you buy the business. Nine times out of 10, when somebody's selling their business on their own, even if they're selling it to a private equity firm or to a, what's called an FBA aggregator. Now, these are these companies that are rolling up uh, Amazon FBA businesses. They're not doing a proper ad back schedule. And that buyer is getting some serious instant equity. So if you learn as much as you can about uh, uh, the, the other side as buyers uh, and, and read, especially chapter uh, 11, I think, on ad backs, uh, you'll learn a great deal. You'll learn a great deal. I, no, I think that's super important what you just said. I mean, we're actually in the process right now where we've been looking to acquire and bring on and, um, you know, and understanding, the, you know, different deal structures where I may not have to pay or put out, all, you know, cash, you know, to acquire it. Yeah. And, you know, and so that's kind of one of the things that we've been looking at as well as, um, you know, different terms and things like that. Uh, you know, when we, you know, the secret to being a great buyer in that sense, if you want to not pay all cash, it's, you know, just don't be an asshole. That's really it. The more, <laughs> the more the seller likes you, the more likely they're going to be flexible on how they get paid. I, I had a listing, uh, $2.3 million. We had two full price offers. One was full price all cash from a guy that used to run his own internet search engine. Okay, I'll leave it at that. Uh, the other one was uh, 2.3 million and an SBA buyer. He had to you know, uh, get a 10% seller note. So a $230,000 seller note on a two-year standby in a five-year repayment period. Well, the cash buyer thought he was pretty special and acted like a bit of an a-hole. And it was 2.3 million all cash close in 30 days, right? Right. That's okay. I can get over that. And, you know, but the seller 
loved his employees, wanted them to have a good person to take over the business, cared about them and cared about the business. He chose the other guy. So if you want to be a great buyer and get a great deal, just be a good person. That's awesome. Not hard. I, where can people go grab a copy of the book? Uh, the easiest place to find it is on Amazon. Just do a search for Joe Valley Exitpreneur. Uh, you can go to exitpreneur.io. There's three free chapters that I make available there. They're the most important chapters if you want to take a look at it first. We've also got resources like online bookkeepers and CPAs, tax advisors, uh, even contract attorneys in the e-commerce world there as well. So either uh, Amazon uh, or exitpreneur.io. You can find me either place. Awesome. I'll have links right here. So guys, uh, go grab a copy. It's got some amazing, awesome content. Even if you haven't even thought about it, it's it's something good to have because there's insights in there that are uh, from, you know, hey, do I have the right financial information? Do I have the right this? And who knows, one day you will be, maybe be in a position that you want to have an exit or some exit in general. And you have put together things in place based off of what Joe's been talking about and also what's in the book. And it's going to have you set up for success, not trying to scramble and set yourself up later. So Joe, awesome to have you on the show. Before we go, what's one last thing you're like, oh man, I hope I was hoping Josh was going to ask me this question, but we went all over on this direction, but I really want to make sure everybody understands or has this knowledge or whatever that may be. Yeah. Listen, a lot of people talk about, you know, you should, you, you've all heard, you know, start thinking about your business, selling your business the day that you started. I'm not in that mindset. I know that as an entrepreneur who's launched many businesses, all I'm trying to do is keep the wheels on the bus, but don't wait too long, right? Uh, the longer you wait and say, you know, I'll get to that someday, you are going to wake up and someday we'll be here. And by then it's too late to get the most valuable exit little tips and tools in the book online, find them, you know, uh, connect with somebody that you can talk to about your business so that you can do the right thing. Even if you've got, you know, a plan to sell in five years, the sooner you start talking about it and the sooner you start positioning your business for maximum value, the better. So don't wake up and decide to sell your business, get training on it. That's the playbook itself, right? It's got a training philosophy to it. Get some training on it. It's your most valuable asset. Don't take it lightly. It's not like selling a, a house. There's a lot of nuances to it. <laughs> not to take anything away from real estate brokers, but there's a lot of nuances to it. Don't wake up and decide to sell your business. Plan to sell your business. No, that's. I think that's great. And actually, once you mentioned that, um, I've a friend of mine that uh, he's already sold other businesses in the past. In the process now, they're heading down that road just uh, probably like a year and a half ago, moved to Puerto Rico. <laughs> so he's already setting up the process for that. So yeah. when the exit does happen, he's able to retain more of the, uh, what, what he sold it for then. <laughs> a whole lot, a whole lot of money saved right there in taxes. That's right. For sure. So guys, you got, make sure you go grab the book from Joe, Exitpreneur's Playbook. And again, uh, take these notes, go back, rewind, watch this again. There's so much amazing insights that were, uh, in this podcast, whether you're watching on audio or uh, catching the video, and just really listen to what Joe's talking about, start to take and apply those. Um, I think there's a link on your Exitpreneur website too, where you can click and go uh, fill out a form for a business valuation and everything as well. And then, uh, like I said, grab a copy from Amazon or the link below to go right to Exitpreneur and get your copy of the book. Again, Joe, thank you for coming on Making Bank today. Awesome to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Josh. Appreciate it.
I am Josh Felbert. You were watching Making Bank. Get out and be extraordinary. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. And sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube.